We've been covering a very grim and serious topic the last few days, as many of you know who've been listening. The topic of child molestation, wherever it occurs, is terribly serious. And it's our hope to give you some guidelines on how you and your church can and should respond. Listen to some startling statistics that I was provided with recently. According to some studies, anywhere from 25% to 66% of girls and 25% to 50% of boys will be sexually molested by the time they reach age 18. The tragedy of child sexual abuse can happen to any family. There's more. Sexual abusers are likely to be people we already know and could even be people we care about. It would be easy to figure out who the sexual abusers are if they were like the ones we see on television, those strangers in trench coats hanging around the edges of playgrounds, or the monster-like people who kill and, and, and mutilate children. But you and I know they're hardly ever like that. In 90% of child sexual abuse cases, the child not only knows but also trusts the person who commits the abuse. There's also the issue of the silent problem, we could call it, the silent problem. Often children don't tell anyone about sexual abuse for various reasons. Because, well, they're too young to put what happened to them into words that we can understand or they could articulate. Or they were threatened or bribed by the abuser to keep the abuse a secret. Or they may be afraid no one will believe them once they've told their story. Some blame themselves or believe the abuse is punishment for being bad. And, of course, there's always the factor of shame. They just feel too ashamed or embarrassed to tell anyone, even their parents. Or there's worry about getting into trouble or getting a loved one into trouble if they talk. Silence, therefore, enables sexual abuse to continue. Silence, therefore, protects sexual offenders and hurts the very children who are being abused. Sexual abuse is an extremely difficult and certainly damaging experience. Today, there are many resources to help victims and their families. Children no longer need to suffer in silence. Some laws have been created to notify the public about the sex offenders convicted and released, requiring registration and sometimes notification of their communities. But the fact is, most sexual abuse, nearly 85% of it, is never reported. The police and the courts cannot tell you about these sex offenders because they don't know who the abuser is. But these may be people we know in our families and live right among us in our community. So there are some things we should do. And there's some things we should not do. Let's go with the positive first. I would say let's listen calmly and without reaction. We need to reassure the child as he or she is talking. 
Next, we need to go to the authorities, school officials, police, or your family doctor are trained in these areas. It is often the law to report cases of abuse, so don't keep it silent. Next, I would add, assure your child that neither the abuse nor its outcome is his or her fault. That's very important. One more. Permit the child to talk, but don't try to force it. And don't give them words to say. Let them say it themselves. Sometimes a child will refuse or deny earlier statements due to confusion and painful feelings. You can understand that. But let them talk. Don't try to force anything. And having said don't, let me get into some negatives here. Don't panic or overreact when the child talks about the experience. Children need help and they need support to make it through this difficult time. Let's help them do that. Don't pressure the child to talk or avoid talking about this kind of abuse. Patiently allow the child to talk at her or his own pace. Forcing information can be harmful. Furthermore, silencing the child will not help him or her forget either. Let me mention also another don't. Do not confront the offender in the child's presence. That kind of stress may be harmful. This is the job for the authorities. Leave it to them. Let them do the confronting. And certainly do not blame the child. Listen to this statement. Sexual abuse is never the child's fault. We'll spend some time with a good friend of mine, a professional counselor, who went through this entire ordeal with me at the church I served in California. His name is David Carter, and he serves on the pastoral counseling staff there. I think it will be very, very important and helpful for you. I have Dave Carter here in the studio with me today. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Doing great, Chuck. Well, Dave and I have been hanging around together for years and years. Uh, when I served on the Fullerton Free Church staff, uh, Dave came uh, from uh, Michigan, actually, to join our staff and and really set up a wonderful lay counseling program for us, uh, which is still in operation and, and has done so many other things, uh, along with writing several books. And written anything lately, Dave? Tell me. Well, I did a workbook for Torn Asunder, uh, kind of a self-guided study for couples trying to recover from infidelity. Oh, yeah. Torn Asunder was one of your first volumes? Yep. Yeah. Well, today we're going to move ahead on a subject that is, uh, well, let's say grim and discouraging, David. It uh, can be that way. It is initially, but hopefully there's a, a good outcome to many of these cases as well. Yeah, I think the... Um the worst part is the silence. Mm-hmm. And when you and I were raised, that was the way it was handled. Right. Nobody talked about it. So let's get right into it. Let's let's think today about uh, churches, about you know someone discovering this sort of thing occurring in their church. So let me let me ask a question and and let's go from there. Okay. Okay. Molestation seems so prevalent uh, these days, Dave. Do you think? I think a lot of folks would like to know this one. Do you think it occurs more frequently now than it used to? And if so, why? And if not, why not? 
Well, it certainly is more prevalent in the media, and it certainly is a, a subject that people talk about more frequently. Whether the actual incident is occurring more frequently or not, I, I can't say. There, are, there have been surveys right. where people have tried to explore this. But it, like you said, Chuck, it's been such a secret for so many years, people have been ashamed to even talk about it. Right. Um, my hunch is that it would be more frequent today than it has been in the past, mm-hmm. uh, partially because there's just more overt sexuality out there today. Yes. And uh, people have a tendency to act out uh, sexually in rather crazy ways anymore. I think sometimes uh, in these days in which we live, a person may feel a little bit freer to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Too. And so it comes out of the closet, if you will, mm-hmm. a little more often. Uh, I've not known, however, if if it does actually occur more now. Who will ever know? That's really a hard question. It is hard. And, you know, when I was a kid, though, in elementary school, I can remember them showing us movies about never to talk with strangers and all of that kind yes. of stuff to, yes. to try to protect us. So it, it was an issue clear back then. Right. You use the word protect us, and that leads me to another question that comes to mind. What do you think a church can do to protect itself from from this kind of experience? What, and while you're answering that one, uh, what do you think that protection would look like, David? Well, there's a number of things that a church can do and should do in this environment. The courts especially are cognizant of, and of what needs to be done to protect children, and they're requiring ever higher standards of protection for the children um, that are in a church setting. First of all, you would want to educate the congregation that you're going to put some changes into place. Mm. And then the church leadership would have to buy into those changes. That's and, a very important point. I'm oh, glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned that. If it doesn't come from the top, That's it right. doesn't happen, does it? No, it doesn't. Or it'll be whitewashed and, and not really implemented effectively. Then you need to do some kind of um, an application process uh, with a fixed term of service so that a person... Uh, is in some kind of a ministry and they know when they're in it and when they're out of it. That'll be helpful. Uh, And the application process needs to be followed by an interview. Hmm. And the interview needs to be followed by education. Here are certain things we're going to implement from now on in our church to protect children. And then you need to follow up in supervision and management and make sure those uh, protections are being implemented appropriately. I'm visiting today with David Carter, who is a professional counselor, um, a licensed counselor who really works most often, I would say, uh, David, correct me, are you with families more often than not? is that the, Families uh, and couples. Yeah, families and couples. So this is the sort of thing that, uh, that you deal with. Mm-hmm. This is not some theoretical interest that you pursue, but you really are, you are hands-on in this right. sort of thing. All right. Yeah. David, um, how do you organize something like this? I mean, it seems it seems complicated, I'm sure, to people who are listening. It almost overwhelming. Mm-hmm. For example, where do you start? Mm-hmm. Well, so often uh, churches are in such need of warm bodies to fill open slots that they just kind of take anybody, mm-hmm. and they don't do any kind of checking. And yet, as our churches grow and as we become more evangelistic and reach out into the community, we are going to attract people that the church leadership doesn't know. And that's the reason why we have to do these kinds of things today, to really protect ourselves and 
I want to add, to protect the adults who are working with the children from false accusations. It works both ways. And there are many stories out there where people have been falsely accused of molestation. Sure. You know, you mentioned uh, a church growing and reaching out to strangers. Let me tell you an experience we had at our church at uh, Stonebrook Community Church here in, uh, in north, far north Dallas in Frisco, Texas. When we first were getting underway, of course, we were, uh, we were all strangers, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't know. Uh, we had a few friends that, that were a part of it, but for the most part, we didn't know each other. And in the meeting uh, of our time of worship, uh, we often found ourselves without sufficient number of people to help us with our children. Because, uh, you know, with every couple, you'll get two, sometimes three or four children. And uh, I remember announcing it just as innocently as I could. And here I am, an experienced pastor, and I should have known better. But I I just stood up and I said, folks, we are in a real bind today. We've got about four or five people working in our nursery. We need about 15. So could eight or ten of you just voluntarily step up and walk out and and be a part of our nursery staff and we'll uh we'll be so grateful well they did they they stood up and they walked out that afternoon i got a call from a very good friend in the church and he said you know chuck we can't do that anymore i said why yeah and you you could answer that david yeah i mean that is a molester's paradise it is that's all he uh, needs. Right. He's invited to step into a setting mm-hmm. such as that. And right. it never, Dave, it never dawned on me. Mm-hmm. After all we've been through, after all you and I've been through, mm-hmm. you know, in dealing with this kind of thing, here I was opening the door for that. Thankfully, we had no problem, but we certainly could have had mm-hmm. that. Well, that's part of the purpose of the interview. It scares those kinds of people off. Oh, let me tell you, yeah. now... We deal with such things as, do you have a criminal record? Mm -hmm. We make that a part of the interview in writing Mm -hmm. so that they put their name and and we're able to to check that out Mm -hmm. to make sure they've answered correctly. And the courts also want to know if you ask people if they have a molestation history, a personal molestation history, because we know that many times people who are molested – do molest other children unless they've worked through it and worked on it. Yes. They're just more inclined to do that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, this is a good time for me to just throw this one in, and maybe you haven't done enough research on it to to answer this. Uh, can you really overcome this particular sin in your life? Can it be conquered? Well, that's a hard question. I know it is. I know it is. Uh, Nash, well, let, let me put it this way. Have you ever known of anyone? Oh, yeah. Sure. I think uh, especially women are more prone to recover if they've been involved uh, in taking advantage of children or if they've been molested themselves. They seem to be able to heal better here right. than men do. But if you are the male perpetrator, mm-hmm. that uh, there the statistics aren't very favorable. Nope. Are they? They'd say less than 2% ever get better. What kind of – here's a tough one. What kind of congregational reaction can you expect when a church starts down this journey and, for all the right reasons, begins to implement some of these changes? What kind of reaction could we expect? Well, some people are going to be very upset. They're going to feel like um, they're not trusted. They're going to feel like there's a witch hunt going on. They're going to 
uh, respond that it's unnecessary. It takes too much time. It's um, uh, demeaning to go through an interview process like this. Right. But on the other hand, every parent of small children will stand and applaud because it makes the place safe for their children. And that's what we all want as parents. We want to be able to take our kids to Sunday school and church and not only give them great memories, but to give them great memories in a safe place where nobody's ever hurt them or taken advantage of them. Such a good answer. Mm -hmm. Folks, you're listening today to uh, Dave Carter on our Insight for Living broadcast. Uh, Dave and I served for years together at the First Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, California. And uh, because of uh, the things that you have heard from our broadcast in previous days, you you know what we went through, and we have David to thank for being the one who helped helped us put together the uh, corrective measures that we went through. Hmm. Uh, there was no manual to follow, was no, there? No, there wasn't. And, and really, we didn't know of a church to call who had gone through this sort of thing like we felt you should go through it. So you really plowed fresh soil, as I recall. Well, we didn't know a church who had gone through it, like you said, Chuck, that, right. the way we wanted to go Ex- through exactly. it. Exactly. To arrive on the other side of it like we wanted to arrive. Which brings up the subject of education. How, how, do, how does a pastor or how does a counselor who is a part of the staff educate the congregation about the changes? Like, like uh, what do you say to the ones who complain about the application process or, or the interview or or the new and different procedures that are implemented in the ministry to minors? Well, once they hear the outline of the procedures and the rationale behind implementing these procedures, most of the apprehension melts away. And they see it as something that not only protects the child, but also protects them from any kind of false accusation. And they're not being singled out. They're part of a group. This is the way we do things in children's ministry or junior high ministry or high school ministry. Mm. If they persist in being um, upset or vocal against— that kind of thing. Right, resist. That's right. Then you don't want them in this program because you've got to be able to trust people to implement Mm. what you say you're going to do Mm. uh, when you talk with parents and when you talk um, with other youth workers. Dave, I'm gonna I'm gonna toss you a curve here. Uh, you and I haven't talked about these questions ahead of time. I'm gonna I'm gonna really throw you one that's gonna be tough. And again, if it's not fair, please don't uh, don't get yourself in a corner on this one. What if the senior pastor of a church? I can't imagine one, but I'm sure there would be one. What if a senior pastor of a church resisted this plan? Didn't want it. Didn't think we have to deal. Even though there may be reasons to believe you've got the problem going. I'm not talking about an imaginary. I'm saying even though there are real suspicions and perhaps facts to deal with, but he does not want to open that can of worms. What do you do? Well, I can tell you a real-life story that just happened in the last couple of years. Really? Uh, Yeah. A youth pastor felt like his senior pastor was doing just that and went to the chairman of the board who refused to do anything about it. The uh, chairman refused, yep. okay. Yep, and they fired this youth pastor, and then he had, he had to revert to legal means and report it to um, police authorities. Now, now, was he obligated to do that? 
Well, this is a good point. I wonder. I don't know that we were had planned to talk about this. You know, I don't know all the details of this particular case, but I would assume he would be a, a mandated reporter in California. He would be a mandated reporter, whether he is in that particular state or not. I do not know. Every state has some different regulations about right. that. But all pastors are mandated reporters in the state so of California. So if a pastor knows for a fact mm-hmm. a molestation is going on... He's required to report it to Child Protective Services or the police department. Let's say that one more time. Let's just make that real clear, okay? okay? Say it again. If a pastor knows, a senior, any pastor knows that child molestation or abuse or has a reasonable suspicion that it is occurring and he doesn't report it, he is liable in a court of law. Hmm. So I think we could say a word to a a board of elders, Mm -hmm. or if a church is governed by a board of deacons, Uh uh, they need to step up. They do. They really do. We're Uh, we're really talking courage here, David. We are. We're talking courage. You... Uh, I remember when we were dealing with it, uh, it became a subject of conversation. You know, this could lead to uh, legal. Remember that, David? Oh, I do. This could lead to legal ramification. What if? And None of the men were afraid of it, thankfully, because we had such a fine board. But, you know, we all were dealing with it. We had a couple of attorneys on the board. Right. What if? What if? And I remember looking at them that dark evening and saying, men, the scriptures make it clear that we're to deal with this. And we must. And you know what? We had unanimity right. at that moment. If you run scared, you won't do it. You'll never stop running either. That's exactly right. Yeah. And you'll never stop looking the other way. That's right. Now, how should a church family respond if um, if allegations are made against a church worker or a church member? Now, this is the other side of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, as these church families respond in a certain way, uh, what can be done to support, you know, both sides? Well, in America, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. So you need to be careful not to jump to a guilty conclusion. That's the first thing. Secondly, you have to learn to trust your church leadership, that they wouldn't do something like this unless there were solid grounds. Mm. And third, the worst thing you could do is start your own investigation of what's going on. And contaminate this and go talk to the child or the family uh, that is involved. You need to leave that to the people who really do investigations well and and maybe make it their full-time job. Um, Hmm. We found at our church that initially there was this rush to try to find out all the facts. And then we realized to do that, you lose your role of being a pastor and of being a church. You become the police department or the detective branch of the of the yeah. church. Yeah. So we kind of backed off and started just trying to be a church to both sides and let the detectives do the detective job and let the prosecution do the prosecution work and everything else. We were in the recovery. We were in the healing. That's work. right. That's the side. And you uh, need to that keep— That doesn't mean there wasn't confrontation when that's there needed right. to be. That's right. But our goal was to bring hope and provide refuge and a place of comfort. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, David, this might be a good place to uh, spell out the categories uh, following our worship service, which was such a, as our folks have heard on the radio, following our worship service, we had different categories of individuals meeting with professionals in different 
rooms of our educational buildings. Can you describe how we separated those groups? Well, we had one meeting for children, uh, parents of small children, because immediately there's a panic that my child's involved in something like this. And, uh, or, or has been victimized. Or has right? been victimized, right. Okay, I got it. Right. And that, uh, those, that team of individuals reviewed signs and symptoms of childhood molestation, uh, talked about parental reactions to the child, what, what will make it worse and what can be helpful and supportive, mm. um, went over the, the barest of facts uh, that we knew at that point in time, so, uh, which included years and suspicions and kind of helped people put some parameters or parentheses around some of this so they would know if they're in the safe zone or maybe in a danger zone. Right. Then we actually um, met with parents of adolescents separately because they have a very different reaction to sexual molestation. And we talked about the different uh, responses those kind of parents could have. And then we had a, a third group where, um, in our case, most of the children were now adults. And so we invited any of those who wanted to talk about it to come and join us. Mm. And we would talk about what we knew and what would be helpful for them if they suspected that they were had been involved in something like this or had clear recall of it. And then last of all, we did a parent support group for parents of these adult women who are now grandparents in most cases oh, yeah. because they felt so badly mm. about uh, their own child going through these kinds of hurts and pains. And in 99% of the cases, they had no clue that this had gone on. Is that right? You know, you've got another problem when you uncover the fact that they may have suspected but did nothing about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's another whole thing. In each one of these groups, I know this answer, but I want our listeners to hear. In each one of these rooms where we had individuals meeting, did you have a professional there? Oh, yeah. A Christian professional. Counselor. A Christian professional and a pastor. A pastor from the staff. Right. And a Christian professional. Right. And when, a couple of them, we had a couple of professionals just because we felt like this is so potent, so powerful that sometimes people would just break down hearing oh, a question. Absolutely. And someone had to go and really minister to that individual or that family. You know, David, I've never, I've never shared this with uh, anyone, but I think it's appropriate that I do this. Because those girls who were violated uh, by this perpetrator uh, back then were about the ages of my daughters, mm -hmm. I remember, David, taking the time, and one of our daughters was, uh, was living a long distance away, and we flew to uh, an area to meet with her because I wanted to know if she had ever been touched inappropriately at this time by that individual. Uh -huh. uh, and I asked the same of another daughter who was living locally. And uh, I am so relieved, and to this moment I am so full of gratitude that both said, oh, no, that, that was never our experience. Uh -huh. In fact... Uh, <laughs> I am so pleased to say that both of them said that remember we met with them separately both of them said oh daddy if we had if that had ever happened you'd have been the first to know uh -huh. isn't that great that's great oh. that is great Cynthia and I of course we just we were just moved to tears as we talked with our daughters uh, and uh, to hear them say that we would have been the first to know mm. 
One of the things, though, Chuck, that often happens in these kinds of cases is the perpetrator threatens to kill the parents if the child reveals a secret. Oh. So there is the double bind. You know, you're so what, damned if you do and damned yes. if you don't. Yes, you just right. you can't do anything. You're trapped right. in this very, very painful experience. Uh, for you folks that are just tuning in, we're talking together in an unusual Insight for Living broadcast, and we'll continue tomorrow as well. Uh, we're talking with David Carter, who is a professional licensed counselor, state of California, and uh, has a private practice, but also is on the pastoral staff at the First Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, where we went through the uh, the horror and the great disappointment of this experience a number of years ago. I got one more question for you, okay. uh, Dave, if you, if you will. How can a parent build good boundaries in their children to protect them from molestation? And uh, before you're through, address some Christian materials that might be available to help parents in this process. Well, the primary task of the parent is to teach the child that there are some no-touch zones on their body, that the child has full control over any adult who touches him. And he has a right to say no, especially if the touch is inappropriate or in one of those no-touch zones. Secondly, the parent needs to impart the child the freedom to talk to someone about the person who violated this restriction. Hmm. And if you say it before it happens, many times the child um, is freer to come and report what has gone on. There are some other signs and symptoms that you can read into this experience and sort out that some molestation has taken place. But the parent needs to impart that information. Those Mm -hmm. two things. You have permission to talk about this, and no adult has a right to ever touch you in these positions Mm -hmm. without asking your permission. And you do this whether it's a boy or a girl? With a boy or a girl. Wow. Good. Excellent. How about some materials? Are there any things that people might... Well, there are some Christian materials uh, called Protecting... Protecting Your Child from Sexual Assault, there is a parent's book, and there is a workbook as well that parents can use. The title of the book is Little Ones, Protecting Your Children from Sexual Assault by William Katz, K-A-T-Z. And then there's an activity book, workbook, that goes along for the children to fill out, and that was produced by Lynn Heitreiter, H-E-I-T-R-I-T-T-E-R. And we you recommend it? Oh, I do. Yeah, it's you've used it. Uh, we have. We've used hundreds of them. We wow. probably passed out two hundred of them that one Sunday. So it's a very helpful. And it's written from a, a Christian perspective. It talks about stewardship of our bodies, and it talks about God's very interested in this, and Jesus doesn't want any of the little children harmed, and He's put out very stiff penalties on the adult who hurts a little child. Right. Looking back, David, um, and knowing it opened such an enormous hole that uh, will really never be covered over as, as the whole issue keeps being addressed, you'd do it again, wouldn't you, David? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't you think we did the right thing? Oh, absolutely. Or so do I. And, I, you know, Chuck, I'd say to every pastor out there, the, the whole purpose of prevention is not to ferret out any molesta- uh, molesters in your church or perpetrators absolutely. in your church. Right. It, it's really primarily to scare them away from your place, yes. to, to, make it, to make them go through a process that will frighten them because they become subject to, to disclosure and openness. Yes. 
You've been very helpful, David. Uh, uh, join, join me for our next broadcast. Will you do that, man? Oh, I will, thanks. Yeah, we want to do that, folks. But remember, uh, men and women, as you listen today, this is real-life stuff. This is not designed to exploit or to take advantage of or to, uh, or to sound overly dramatic. We are here because this is real. These things happen. In fact, in a conversation with you, David, recently, you were telling me, what was that statistic you said? I think as we open this door, what is it, maybe half of those who listen? Up to half of the women who are listening to this broadcast and up to 20% of the men who listen to this broadcast have a history of molestation. That just puts a chill up my back to hear that. Yeah. We care about these things, folks, at Insight for Living, and uh, we invite you to return with us uh, tomorrow as we continue. If you would like to discuss with someone the sensitive issue of sexual abuse, Insight for Living pastors are available to bring you biblical help, a listening ear, and a godly perspective. Even if all you'd like to do is pray with someone you can trust, please contact us. You can call us at 972-473-5097, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. That's 972-473-5097. We also have a special phone line available for pastors, spouses of pastors, and church leaders. Call the Pastor to Pastor line at 972-473-5102. Again, for pastors, spouses of pastors, and church leaders, you can call 972-473-5102. If you'd like to contact us by mail, send us a letter addressed to Insight for Living Pastoral Ministries, Box 269000, Plano, Texas, 75026-9000, USA. That's Insight for Living Pastoral Ministries, Box 269000, Plano, Texas, 75026-9000, USA. Or you can email us through our website at insight.org forward slash contact a pastor. Again, that's insight.org forward slash contact a pastor. We also have a number of helpful articles and resources on the subject of sexual abuse on our website at insight.org forward slash abuse. That's insight.org forward slash abuse. The preceding interview, How Churches Can Deal with the Issues of Molestation, was copyrighted in 2001, and the sound recording was copyrighted in 2010 by Charles R. Swindoll, Inc. All rights are reserved worldwide.